is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? Box 39 with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. Joined this week by Ian Tallentire. Hello. Hello there to everyone listening to the show. This is Box 39, and yes, we are all safe, we're all well, and we're social distancing uh, in the studio tonight. As you heard, I'm with Ian tonight. So, welcome to Box 39 once more. So, with the familiar... Uh, sound of Left Bank 2 playing there in the background. Once again, we don't have Ausgang Exit with us in the studio this week. Uh, they've been apparently, though, have won their legal battle. They can now assert their, na- their name. They've got the right to use the name Ausgang Exit without paying any tariff to the European Union for the use of the German word Ausgang. Their status as a domestic and international supergroup was in doubt for a while. Is that a status or status, Bill? Status. Oh, hello, everybody. I'm back. It's only taken six months to find my way back into the studio, but I'm back to annoy Mr. Lawrence. It's feeling great. Hello. Well, do you know, it does clear up, doesn't it, the whole messy issue of the status of bands from outside the European economic trade era, using words like, uh, you use European languages for names. Can you can think of any? Uh, Bruderschaft des Menschen. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. There must be more. Die Neuen Zucker. Keep going. Die Dunkelzeit des Mond. Wow. And that's, uh, I think that's just about the list of uh, studio bands in Suffolk, isn't it, Bill? Well, no wonder. Ausgang Exit were playing with slightly variable tempos in the lead-up to Brexit. Nerve-wracking times, I'm sure you'll agree. Anyway, tonight we'll be playing some of Ausgang Exit's old tapes. Now, Ian, what is this show all about? Well, funnily enough, Mr Lawrence, it's about status. Or is that... Status. question you tend to get asked when you meet someone at a party is so what do you do and according to how impressive your answer is people are either really keen to get to know you better or swiftly leave you behind by the nuts we're anxious because we live in a world of snobs people who take a tiny part of us our professional identities and use these to come to a complete verdict about how valuable we are as humans and that's why we worry so much about judgment and humiliation It's said we live in materialistic times, but it's more poignant than that. We live in times where emotional rewards have been pegged to the acquisition of material things. What people want when they go after money, big jobs or fancy cars, is rarely the things in themselves so much as the attention and respect, if you like the love, that are given to those who have them. Next time you see a guy driving by in a Ferrari, don't think it's someone unusually greedy. Think it's someone with a particularly intense vulnerability and need for love.
You're listening to Box 39 here on Cone Radio 106.6 FM. And this week, the three cheated community radio hacks are seeking recognition and admiration by talking about status. Let me assure Wibbenho residents that these jingles are being produced in Indonesia using the classical gig economy and zero hours contract model. So you are listening to a little bit of Outgoing Exit. Of course, it's on tape, I'm afraid, but they are playing a good day for buses being on time. And so we say goodbye. We fade out that tape. We'll have Outgoing Exit back later. And a very prescient thing to say because actually it was a good day today for buses being on time. Now, Ian, what's the first thing you've got to ask us today? Um, I think I'd like you to have a think about important jobs, mm-hmm. but those that are low status, yeah. underrated, um, yeah. undervalued, yeah. and that you wouldn't want to do. Would you like to nominate one, please, Bill? Uh, low status, underrated, underpaid. Well, just this is a bit of experience here. I will go. Undertaker. Undertaker, I choose Undertaker because, well, uh, they, they, uh, Really, people perhaps are a little bit uh, unsure if you say you're an undertaker. It's not something you maybe talk about a lot. I don't think uh, they're very rated very highly, but in my experience, they're available day or night. They'll come to your house day or night. Of course, they they have, they have to sit there waiting in the uh, dead centre of town, don't they? Undertakers. That's very, my choice. Very good, Mr. What's your Lawrence? choice? I particularly like that last line. <laughs> dead What's your choice? Sewage plant worker. Ooh. Well, going to work in the morning would be all right, wouldn't it? But, yeah, after yeah, a, but after a day of going through the motions, you really wouldn't. <laughs> oh, you dear, dear, really dear. wouldn't want the work showers to have broken down, would you? No, you wouldn't. No. You wouldn't, and, and you certainly pro- wouldn't want the wind to change direction. No, and you probably the best part of the job is the drive home of an evening, having used the work showers. Yes, but the- absolutely necessary. We need we need them in their place of work. Well, let's hope they have work showers there. Do they have work showers at the, at the sewage pump workers? I hope so. Oh, let's hope so. Let's uh, let's move on swiftly. Hello again. It's me, Venetia Tardy Bent, coming to you today in a state of moderate dudgeon because some of you seem to think I changed the name of my house because it wasn't grand enough. Not at all. I dare say none of you would want to live in a slag bottom either. An Eastie like myself cares little for status. How could I, as the mere sixth daughter of a minor baronet, which frankly cuts no ice with the maitre d' at the Woolsey? Everyone knows the children of baronets have no title. It's the oldest son, however genetically challenged, who will inherit the baronetcy, the money, the estate, and all the trinkets of rank that go with it. And unlike my sisters, I didn't marry for money or titles either. Not that I'm bitter. Hardy acres is more than sufficient for my modest needs. And once I've paid my gardener, driver, cook, housekeeper, cleaner, and general factotum, I'm an extremely low net worth individual. And who needs the upkeep of servants' quarters anyway, when my slender retinue of staff can attend on a daily basis? Who needs the latest Bentley, when my driver James has a perfectly serviceable and commodious Citroen Berlingo, luckily with blacked-out windows, though of course if I'm shopping at Fortnum's I disembark around the corner, only because Piccadilly is a red route, as you know. Yes, I do have the occasional delivery from Waitrose, if it's James's day off, who doesn't? However, I enjoy rifling through the centre aisles at little as much as the next person. I'm certainly not going to bump into my friends there. And now that Harrods no longer deliver light bulbs in their liveried van, I'm perfectly happy for my housekeeper to purchase them from Wilco's. My wardrobe, such as it is, contains sturdy classics dating back decades, supplemented by vintage buys from the right sort of charity shops, rather than the latest designer labels favoured by the status conscious. Indeed, I picked up a darling little Dior clutch and a ravishing Hermes scarf from the British Red Cross shop just off the King's Road not long ago. 
As for my mentoring of Colon Radio, that's one of my guilty earthy pleasures about which I am not ostentatious. I soak my dentures each night in a mug of Sterident, and like most people at the moment, I can't get a toilet roll for love nor money. Now, what could be more normal than that? I've never seen a diamond in the flesh I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movies And I'm not proud of my address In a torn up town, no postcode envy But every song's like Gold teeth, grey goose, tripping in the bathroom Bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in a hotel room We don't care we're driving Cadillacs in our dreams But everybody's like Crystal, Maybach, diamonds on your timepiece Jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold leash We don't care We don't We are caught up in your love affair And we'll never be royals Our societies are, to a large extent, deemed to be fair. Back in the olden days, you knew the system was totally rigged. It wasn't your fault if you were a peasant, and not to your credit if you were the lord. But now we're told our societies are meritocracies, places where the rewards go to those who really merit them, the hard-working, clever among us. It sounds lovely, but there's a nasty sting in the tail. If you really believe in a society where those at the top deserve to get there, that has to mean that those at the bottom deserve to be there too. Meritocracies make poverty seem not just unpleasant, but also somehow deserved. In medieval England, people used to call the poor unfortunates. Literally, people who had not been blessed by the goddess of fortune. Nowadays, especially in the United States, where meritocracy is big, they call them, rather tellingly, losers. Let me be This is Outscan Exit once more. Our resident house band, but I'm afraid not in the studio. They are on an old tape, but it's lovely to hear them again. And this is Outscan Exit with Counting Lorries on the dual carriageway to Harwich. Oh, those were the days, weren't they, Ian? Well, then we used to have them in the corner of the room and we'd be able to see those beads of sweat gently rolling down Big Sue's nose. Yeah, 26 people in a very confined space with large instruments. Yeah, but... It was entertaining. All for one fee. That was the most important thing. It was. Thing. Very good yeah. value for money. Absolutely. Well, look, we'll, uh, we'll turn that tape down a little bit so we can talk about what we want to talk about now. And I want to talk about a thing called the Peter Principle. The Peter Principle. Now... It's an interesting surname. Yes. Well, it's it's not named after Peter someone, I don't think. Uh, uh, not, I mean, it might be Peter Purvis, Peter Pan. Whichever Peter you fancy, Peter, Peter, really. Peck of Pickle. It, I don't know. But anyway, it's known as the Peter Principle, and I'll explain what it is. And it's unusual for me to explain something to you. It's normally the other way around. It is. So I'm going to enjoy this. Now, the Peter Principle is an observation that the tendency in most organisational hierarchies, you know, like a, a big comp- corporation or a big company, is for every employee to rise in the hierarchy through getting promotions until they reach a level of respective incompetence. I think what you mean by that is they get one promotion or two promotions too many and they can't do the job. (sighs) I knew you'd be able to explain it better than me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. But I I get it. So come on then, Bill. What examples of the Peter Principle have you encountered? Or are there any other instances where a uh, purported meritocracy 
was nothing of the sort. Well, I know a meritocracy means everyone's got an equal chance, isn't it? All start from a level playing field. So, okay, where are, where they, where well, there I've was been, no... I've been gathering some views from a local Colchester pub, which I'm going to read out uh, yeah, later on, which yeah. might discount that for you, Mr Lawrence. But that's what meritocracy means, isn't it? It should mean We that, all yes. start from the same place. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're asking me, have I ever encountered uh, in my 114 years... The uh, Peter uh, Principle. The Peter Principle. Yes, I have. Go on, then. Yes, I it? have. But, do you know, he was actually called Peter. Isn't that a funny thing? I won't give his last name because that would be embarrassing, but he was named Peter. Anyway, so if uh, anyone knows my oldest friend called Peter, one of my best friends that I've known, it wasn't him, Okay. Just someone looked like him. Anyway, here we go. He was promoted to being a head electrician. And, you know, he had no idea of how to do electrics. Didn't know at all. All to repair a favour. It was all about, you know, uh, he'd done, he'd done the, the head of the company a very big favour. Got him planning permission. Ah. Uh, or I hadn't, uh, hadn't opposed some planning permission. And he got promoted to head electrician. And, honestly, he was dreadful. <laughs> He well, was it would dreadful. be, if you yeah. didn't understand it. Yeah. So, come on then. Tell me about uh, someone you've known. Well, it's, under not, the Peter it's someone I know of. I've been... It's, you know how much, how much easier it is now to listen to, or overhear, <laughs> listen into conversations in the pub. Yeah. Now there's very few people in them. And I was there. They were, there was a conversation going on about meritocracy bordering on the Peter Principle. Right, and it involved the, the words Gavin and Williamson. Right, and William guy, Gavinson. Yeah, William Gavinson, that's the one. And this guy said he certainly didn't pass his maths exam because yeah. he doesn't understand what an algorithm is. <laughs> so how did he get to be education secretary, yeah. see? And you're going to ask me... Yeah, what is an algorithm? It's a type of equation, Bill. Oh, I thought it was a butterfly. I think you'll find that's a schmetterling or a papillon. This is a postcard from Australia, phoned in by Lord David Price because we wouldn't fly him back to Stansted, first class, via the Cayman Islands. If Ned Kelly was king, he'd make those rubbers swing, he'd send them down. Out in the dead heart, to rest in Canberra, four wheel drive. I was awestruck when I first came to Australia in 1988, how there wasn't really any class system as such that was obvious. Bear in mind that, you know, I'd come from a reasonably well-to-do professional family where it was expected to do certain things that were deemed to be correct, you know, the right thing to do, British public school and uh, university and all this sort of stuff. So when I first got into Perth in 1988, I, I, sort of, I was in fact teaching in, a, in, a, in an, a, the equivalent of Eton or Harrow in Melbourne. So I was uh, submersed, if you like, in that elite environment. But because I played cricket and I sort of got outside the school quite a lot, I, I rubbed shoulders with just your local larrikins uh, who uh, couldn't really give a toss who you were. And when I got to um, getting to know them a bit better, I realised that it was really a hangover from the mother country, the, the colonisation by the British of basically the, the country and uh, the, the fact that we had convicts that were deemed, you know, lesser beings than uh, the white man or the captain of the ships that were coming over here. The fact that we just took over the Aboriginal lands, uh, native lands too, and so when the offspring of these original convicts and immigrants, let's say, to this country got a little bit more savvy and a little bit more second, third generation type of time frames, I guess it was more a case of, you know, the, the attitude of the country became, I don't really give two hoots who you come from or whether you're lardy-dar or this. It's what you do that makes a difference not who you know or you know what your background is in fact the more haughty and british and toffee nosed that, that one was back in melbourne in the late 80s the more scorn it, in a sense was put upon you so it's it's that sort of ned kelly uh larrikin irish convict 
attitude to things. Strangely now, when I'm a bit older, I notice, uh, I do notice latent racism. Um, if you're not white and, and from a uh, sort of British, American, South African background, you're deemed to be a foreigner still. Even though Australia is raised on immigrants, uh, there is still that, that attitude that sort of prevails a bit. But it's nowhere near as prevalent as it, as it, as it was in England when I left, put it like that. Wages are not decided by the extent of someone's human worth or social contribution per se. Wages are simply the result of the intensity with which certain people want a job done relative to the number of people who happen to be able to do it. We may not be able easily to change how much people earn, but we can change how we judge earnings. This isn't an issue of politics. It's an issue of appreciation. We can change how we assess what a modest wage means. We can use our imaginations to remember and hold in mind all that is not quantified in a salary, in our lives and in those of others. All the degrees of intelligence, care, dedication, empathy and creativity that may be present undetected by the blunt aggregated marker of a wage. to Box 39 here on Cone Radio 106.6 FM and this week Bill Lawrence and a couple of people he's picked up along the way are hoping that talking knowingly about status will help with their social mobility. And I'm playing another tape from Ausgang Exit, and this is one of their bangers. This is Guessing Average Salaries According to Profession Can Be Tricky. (laughs) 
I need to bring him back. There's memories that uh, almost bring a tear to my eye to, that we haven't got Alice Gang exit in the studio. There's many a show, and I'd be, I'd be watching, uh, uh, be watching Henry arrive, put his bicycle clips over there, put his bicycle pump over there, put his front wheel of his bicycle over there, and you know, I knew it was going to be a great show. I never understood why he had to take his bike apart as he came into the studio. No, I think he's it, just something he did. I think it helped Routine, his concentration. Yeah. I've got two things that, other than that to say, Bill, because you know, Ask Gang Exit are a prescient and a perceptive band. Uh, they're, they're very good two things yeah. to say. Let's hear a bit more. Okay. Okay, wipe away that tear. Come on in. Well, I say, guessing average salaries, according to profession, can truly be tricky. I mean, yeah. What a great name for a song. So what? what's next, Bill? Well... I want you to listen very carefully here. We've got 10 professions. I've got a list of 10 professions, all right, and 10 average salaries, okay? 10 professions, 10 average salaries. Now, they're in pounds, and they go 15, 20, 25. These are all thousands, by the way. 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 60, 70. So I've got this range of salaries from 15 grand all the way up to 70 grand. Well, the ones on 15 are just underpaid and undervalued, aren't they? Yeah. Well, are you ready, then? So I'm going to say... As ready as I'll ever be. Okay. So, okay. Now... I haven't given you a professional salary yet to guess. I want 70,000. No, 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 no. You don't do it that way. You no, don't... I want 70,000. Uh, no, it doesn't work that way, Ian. But that's I, what I want to be paid. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what we'll pay you. We'll pay you in 70,000 Indonesian rupiah. No. That's about £14. About that, yeah. Or <laughs> less, Possibly actually. Less. <laughs> it's about £4. <laughs> okay. Now... It, uh, now, Home Radio don't pay you seventy thousand. They they only pay me. Well, I don't even get paid seventy thousand. Somewhere near, but not quite. Now, I suggest you change your Ian, a, agent, Ian, if you think you're going to get seventeen uh, all that money. Uh, I don't do box thirty line nine for less than sixty thousand anyway. Oh, I definitely will have to change my agent. <laughs> yeah. well, Come on, know, then. let's I, get on with the quiz. All right, on, here we go on. then. First one, lecturer. Lecturer. What amount of money uh, do you think a lecturer earns on average? Well, they're only a posh teacher, aren't they? 45,000, I reckon. Ooh, more than that. A little bit more. 50. Yeah, that's right. And teachers, uh, lecturers, rather, annual salary on average, about 50 grand, yeah. Uh, so they'd be the same as, uh, what, a health, health services manager, maybe? Human yeah, resources manager, HR yeah. manager? Okay, so you've done yeah. that one. Uh, now, but you, you mentioned 15,000. Yeah. Yeah, so what's that, what's that one then? Well, if I was, say, bar staff, would you think that'd be right? Bar staff? Uh, would that be about, I think you'd be correct, bar staff. You, yeah. It was about the lowest 15,000 so miles. like hairdressers as well? Dry cleaners, maybe. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. What about chartered accountant? Chartered means they've passed all the posh exams. Chartered well, accountant. Are there two types of accountant? Yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's chartered accountants and your accountant. Or are there three? Um, I'm going to go for 40,000. Chartered accountant, 40,000. Absolutely. Well done. Yeah, I know. I can I see it know. on your piece of paper. <laughs> oh, God, blimey. All right, okay. If you don't know, cheat, children. It's the only way in life. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> All right, then. Um, so, so how about uh, £40,000, yeah, chartered accountant. They're probably a bit like a physical scientist, production process engineer, or a library assistant. Really? Yeah. Now, I'm going to come down. Uh, library assistant. How much library assistant? 20000 Yeah, well done. I know, I can see it. A senior police officer. 60,000. Spot on. Well done. I, I, know, I can still see your paper. Well, move further away. <laughs> How about a large goods vehicle driver? Uh, I reckon about 25 grand. No, too low. 30,000. Yeah, that's right. Large goods vehicle drivers earn about 30,000 pounds, put some on a par with. I'll tell you what, you, you just read it. Go on. Uh, occupational therapists and IT technicians. Uh, okay, you can move away now. Move okay. away. Move back, please. Senior ambulance officer. Uh, senior ambulance officer is going to be a little bit less than a senior police officer. We've used 50, 40, 35, too low. About 45,000 then. 
that's very well worked out. Very, very good. Uh, right, yeah, apparently senior ambulance officers on average get about £45,000, as do senior fire officers, senior prison officers. Right, Ian, close your eyes, look away. Here we go. Up holster. I think there's only 25,000 you've not used, <laughs> isn't there? So it would be that one. Neil, yes. Like a youth community workers. And uh, uh, what else? Well, I can't read your handwriting, so I can't see what that yeah, says. Yeah, soon to be fired. Local community radio <laughs> hacked like yourself, I think. While I'm at it, legal professionals. Uh, 70, and then there's only one left. 35. Who's, who's that for? Uh, podiatrists, look, look, I've had enough They earn this. more than that if they're playing with your feet. Do you know, they don't pay me enough for this aggravation. <laughs> I want to be a billionaire, so make a bed, buy all of the things I never had. I want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine, smiling next to Oprah and the Queen. Oh, every time I close my eyes, I see my name in shiny. Yeah, a different city every night. Oh, I, I swear the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. Yeah, I would have a show like Oprah. I would be the hoster every day Christmas. Give Trappy a wish list. I'd probably pull an Angelina and Brad Pitt and adopt a bunch of babies that ain't never had shit. Give away a few Mercedes like, here, let me have this. And last but not least, grant somebody their last wish. It's been a couple months that I've been single, so you can call me Travis Claus, minus the ho-ho. We're constantly told that we could become anything. We hear it from our earliest days. It should be great that there's so much opportunity in the modern world. But what if we fail in such a world? What if you don't manage to get to the top when there was said to be every chance? A society that tells people they could have everything, but where in fact only a tiny minority can, will end up with a lot of dissatisfaction and grief. Make up your own definition of success instead of uncritically leaning on societies. There are so many ways to succeed and many of them have nothing to do with status as it's currently defined within the value system of industrial capitalism. We should refuse to let our outer achievements define our sense of self entirely. There remain so many vital sides of us that will never appear on our business cards that don't stand a chance of being captured by that maddeningly blunt and unimaginative question. So, what do you do? Be a billionaire, so make a <laughs> Do you know, I used to love it when uh, Ausgang Exit played this one. Lucky Shoestring and the brand new Conco. It's one of my favourites, you know, and uh, I, always, I always remember th- 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 uh, that Henry... Uh, came to me uh, he was giving he was running me my bath and he said I've come up with this song and it was this one Lucky Shoestring and the brand new Conker well let's fade that away unfortunately let's hope to have them back soon eh? it won't be long anyway what have you got from us next uh, Ian uh, you know by saying that by the way I don't mean to uh, that you're in charge in any way I have delegated the next bit to you, okay? It's been delegated to you. What have we got next? Which bit is it? Which bit are we doing? <laughs> well, you've got to accept the task first. I'll accept the task. What bit are we doing next? That bit there. Which bit where? That bit just, just beneath me. Just above you. Where it says topic? Yeah, go on. What does the American dream mean? No, you're on the wrong page. Am I? <laughs> what do you want? Regional accents? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll tell you what. No, I'm just proving it's live radio and that we can have a conversation about nothing for a few <laughs> seconds. Because you said we couldn't have a conversation for two minutes without, you know, some sort of interference. So I'm just proving that you're wrong, Mr. Lawrence. There's what no... do we want to talk about? I... I would like to talk about regional accents. All right. Favourite people, the most famous, or your favourite figure with a defining accent in UK culture and media over the years? 
Okay. Well, you can do that if you want. Oh, okay. Or do you want to do that later? Well, you see, you might as well have a microphone. You need some microphone training. Okay. So, what are we going to do then? We look at Lucky Shoestring and the brand new Conker. No, we heard that. You just keep up, Ian. Why don't you keep up? Spend okay. less time. Spend less time looking through your contract, trying to find ways in which you, you're not being paid enough. And, well, I'm and not approaching the 70,000, so I just thought I'd, you know, <laughs> sort of ham it up for a bit. So let's see. Young people, come on then. We'll get serious. Young people are bombarded with notions of what success is in life, aren't they? They are, they are. Yeah. These notions can be uh, browbeat upon us, uh, inspire us as we yeah, live our lives. If, us, if you yeah. could talk to, you know, I mean... I guess the point I'm trying to get to is if you're able to talk to your 16-year-old self, Mr. Lawrence, yeah. what advice would you give about how to define success? Well, if I could talk to my 16-year-old self, I'd say for the first thing, look, get your hair cut. That's the first thing I'd say because that was 1978, so I did have very long hair. And I'd say, you're not going to be successful with that long hair. Get yourself a decent 1980s mullet, I would have said. But wouldn't you have been sounding just like your father? <laughs> yeah, too true. <laughs> I'd say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Ah. No, and I think... What about you? Well, it's, you know, society has probably proved over the years there's nothing wrong with a good dose of nepotism, is there? Quite right. Though I think on that little bit on meritocracy earlier on, that would hopefully prove that wrong. What would I say to myself? Yeah. I'd probably, seriously, getting away from the haircuts and not having curtains... Um, I would have said work harder earlier because yeah. I think as we all know doors close very quickly in those uh, early teenage years if we don't hit the grade opportunities are actually stripped from under our feet that we may have been perfectly capable of fulfilling um, so kids if you're listening to uh, Ian on the radio this uh, <laughs> Thursday evening get working work hard now because then you'll have plenty of opportunity and more time than the golf course when you're older. Well, you know, I used to be content with running just the Box 39 show, and then, and then we got the slot, didn't we, after 9 o'clock, and we started broadcasting Red Button. And, and then you got involved with Onions. Yeah. And then I felt I'd achieved. I'd achieved, I thought, I've achieved all the success that I could handle. I've been praying all the week through At home and working on the bus I've been praying I can keep you And to earn enough for us And I can take humiliation And hurtful comments from the boss I've been hoping by the weekend I can earn enough for us Found a house that won't repair itself With the windows cracking and the roof Held together with holes And just because we're on the bottom of the ladder We shouldn't be sad about others like us Who have goals for the betterment of life doesn't seem to make sense to suggest that there might be such a thing as good materialism. After all, isn't materialism just plain bad, always? It can seem as if we're faced with a stark choice. Either you can be materialistic, and that means obsessed with money and possessions, shallow and selfish, or you can reject materialism, be good, and focus on more important matters of the spirit. But in truth, most of us are, in our hearts, stuck somewhere between these two choices which is pretty uncomfortable. We're still enmeshed in the desire to possess, but we're encouraged to feel rather bad about it. Yet, crucially, it's not actually materialism, the pure fact of buying things and getting excited by possessions, that's ever really the problem. We're failing to make a clear distinction between good and bad versions of materialism. I can take humiliation and hurtful comments from the boss I've been hoping by the weekend I can earn enough for us I can earn enough for us
This is a postcard for Box 39 on Kong Radio from Pamela in the USA. May 2013, the hamlet of Rancho Brazos, 65 miles southwest of Dallas, Texas, was beset by a Class F4 tornado, which killed six souls and damaged 110 homes beyond habitation. I had been working as director of the Hamlet's Community Center, developing an after-school program for 65 children, ages 5 to 18 years, organizing volunteer tutors, supporting English as second language classes, and providing outreach services to families who fell in the lowest socioeconomic class of the town of Granbury, of which Rancho Brazos belonged. Residents included documented and undocumented ethnic Hispanics from Mexico, white families who suffered poverty established as many as four generations back, and recipients of homes built by the non-governmental organization Habitat for Humanity. The tornado also affected homes of families in the nearby gated communities of Pecan Plantation and Rancho Cordova, although not to the collective scale as Rancho Brazos. At the short period of time of the presence of the tornado, there was an equalizing factor that occurred. The residents were all affected, with persons missing who had to be located by first responders, injuries of various levels, initial damage to property, and intense fear of subsequent reported tornadoes. The first night, most residents were transported to a sheltering church where the Red Cross was dispatched to provide immediate aid. Most of the undocumented residents walked across town to families who lived in neighboring hamlets, avoiding the Red Cross system out of fear of reporting their status. Those who participated in Habitat for Humanity home ownership program had insurance that paid for a mid-range hotel in Granbury. Those who lived in trailers and uninsured homes were ushered to cramped rooms of a motel that bore a reputation for drug dealings and usage and prostitution. Access to relief services was determined by participation in the Habitat program, documentation status, and the education levels of residents, some of whom had little idea of relief services offered and their rights generally as victims of such a grand scale disaster. Social classes have been around since ancient times. From the Greeks all the way to the Chinese, they have all had some type of social pyramid to abide by. Although most of us don't realize it, the United States has one of the most diverse social class systems, ranging from the richest of the rich to the homeless and hungry. The majority of the time, we see the media express USA as a wealthy country, but no one ever notices the levels of poverty that lie right beneath. Here we will see the five social classes that America has. At the top is the upper class. The upper class is known as an exclusive part of our country. The majority of the wealth that is acquired by the upper class is passed down from generations. It could be that these people serve on boards of directors of corporations, universities, or banks, or charities. They give their children the finest education and expect them to marry in their class. The middle class has two sections to it, the upper middle and lower middle. The upper middle class may live near the upper class. They're usually high paid professionals such as doctors, lawyers, or business people. 
They receive high education and support their children in expensive colleges in hopes of success. The lower middle class is where most Americans live in. They live in well-kept suburb neighborhoods. These people may have a government job, such as a police officer and a firefighter, or may own a small business. They stress moral values, religion, and working hard to succeed in life. The working class may live in some of the same neighborhoods as the lower middle. They may be factory workers or any other semi-skilled job. Their pastime activities might include watching TV, bowling, or participating in church-related activities. The lower class has a high crime rate. They have poor health, poor education, and bad reputations. They may not graduate from high school, which makes it hard for them to get a job. They live in rundown buildings or small apartments. They have a small income. These are the five social classes that live in America. This is Box 39 with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. Joined this week by Ian Tallentire. One of your favourites, I know, Ian, this is March of the Mostly Domesticated Squirrels by Ausgang Exit. Now we'll drop that sound down. Ian, we've given you a cup of coffee. We've agreed to play you a little bonus to concentrate. <laughs> I've even given you one of the exclusive, exclusive Cone Radio black gel pen pens with Cone Radio rocks written on the side. Okay, I'm so uh, that. Uh, I think so. Now look, Ausgang exit. You know they embody what uh, what many call the Northeast Essex dream. But you know that isn't a thing, is it? Because if it were, it would be like the American dream. Isn't that right? I guess so, Bill. But what does the American dream mean? Ooh, that's a big juicy one, that one. What does the American dream mean? Leading question. Yeah. Uh, American dream, I think, it's... uh, Well, they love a good rags-to-riches story. You know, anyone can make a fortune in the United States, no matter uh, how poor you start out. But that's the sort of the American dream, isn't it? But really, do those perceptions of the American dream, do they really match the reality? You know, are Americans similar or different to people in other countries when it comes to their uh, beliefs about how easily people can move between socioeconomic classes? Americans overestimated people's chances of climbing from the bottom to the top of the economic ladder. Meanwhile, Europeans underestimated the probability of rising out of poverty. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, well, how? And Dis- despite that? Yeah, but de- de- America depicts itself in lots of different ways, doesn't it? It does. Despite the common American dream narrative, you know, people in the United States are much less likely to rise from the bottom to the top of the economic hierarchy than those in other nations, such as Denmark and Canada. Well, can we stop you there? Because isn't that just the fact that they're fed a line? Absolutely, that's what we're saying. It's These views are tied to people's beliefs about the role of government, aren't they? Americans don't really look favourably upon a government intervention than the Europeans did, do they? It's a bit odd there, because it's federal, isn't it? Yeah. Big European liberals, it's all about mobility, isn't it? You know, so they would have to, us believe. More likely to support the police, uh, policies rather than the police, the policies of income redistribution. But surprisingly, conservative Americans don't see that connection. They don't see that connection that, you know, you support income re- redistribution, you, you'll get mobility. So if people were... Re- my point, Ian, my point. Let me get to my point. I wish you would, because it's taken a while. <laughs> well, this is my point. My point is this. Shall I tell you my point? Please do. Okay. If, and this is my point, if people were fully informed about the real degree of mobility in their country, do you know those liberal Americans might support more government intervention and Europeans might support less? I always think the American view is do it yourself. Whereas the European view tends to be level playing field. 
Well, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so go on. Well, how does, how does this and how America depicts itself uh, in, you tell me. in the world of entertainment, for instance, you tell affect me. us? Does it affect, well, I mean, how do they depict themselves in the world of entertainment? Well, I That's reckon, well, they depict themselves, in my opinion, as being big, bold, bright, the best, powerful, strong, not necessarily clever, but they'll get there in the end. Tenacious, I would say. But actually, when you think about the film industry, it's all pretty, I would say, the vast majority of it is pretty formulaic. Mm. You know, when we think about, you know, we've got sequences of films where we've got one through to seven, it's not much difference, is no, it? No, that's right. Uh, whereas, whereas Art House, yeah. you know, when you've got innovative um, theatre and cinema, that's never struck me as being the American thing. I'm sure Pam will tell us different. Yeah. When we next have a, a Zoom call. But don't that Napoleon Dynamite, what's all that about then? I haven't got a clue what's going on in that, Bill. Not <laughs> a clue. Well, let me ask you another question. Have we got anything thoughtful and provocative about Facebook and laptops to offer to our listeners? simply someone without an independent centre of judgement. Someone who can only value what the in-group in society happens to esteem at any point in time. Snobs' opinions and tastes might be quite sane, or not. The key thing is that they aren't their own. Snobs cannot tell what to make of anything until other prestigious voices have made up their minds for them. There is a particular conundrum that sets in when snobs have a child. How should they evaluate this new creature, in whom the world has no particular interest, and who cannot wow or dazzle it? At heart, the snob suffers from low self-confidence, which is why the incompetence of their own small child is so galling. The baby can't buy or sell a company, star in a movie, or even drink neatly from a cup. And it may, on this basis, generate panic and fury in its snobbish carers. No matter where you go in Britain, you'll hear a regional accent. There's Cockney from London's East End. In Wales, speech tends to be breathier. Up in Scotland, the accent's more guttural. And in Newcastle, there's the famous Geordie accent. But over in Buckingham Palace, the Queen's English is known as Received Pronunciation, or RP. And according to a leading academic, Brits with strong regional accents experience discrimination, so are under pressure to push up their speech in order to climb the career ladder or just make a better impression about themselves. Britain might be a diverse, multicultural society and there's a strong awareness of the problems surrounding racism, sexism and 
ageism, but according to experts, accentism here is the last taboo. And in a country where class is still so divisive, where it's not just money and education that stratifies people, but also the way they talk, according to many, accentism is just another word for classism. Caroline comes from Huddersfield in Yorkshire. She grew up with a strong regional accent. So you have to talk in long vowels, so I would have used to talk like that, and you say, I don't know. But as Caroline got older, went to university and moved to London, she found she'd changed the way she spoke. But it's something this London-based Yorkshire lass has come to regret. I found that it's maybe disrupted, you know, my sense of who I am at times. You know, when I go home and speak to people from home and they'll say, oh, your voice has turned posh, then I feel a bit, you know, detached from them. But the question is, when will British culture and the establishment be more inclusive of those with regional and working class accents? Do you know, and this is a tape of Ausgang Exit playing Reasonable Record Card, Walk Home Happy. And this is from a 2016 gig in the Royal Albert Hall. I'm led to believe, Ian, by, uh, you know Dave that runs the uh, the burger bar at Stanway at the Golf yeah. Club? Well, he says this is one of his, the biggest uh, traded bootlegs that he sells. Really? One, yeah. The Albert Hall gig. It, yeah. He said the number of people that come off the A12 there late at night to buy Ausgang Exit bootlegs, and this seems to be one of the most popular ones. I'm not surprised. I thought the sound quality was particularly good yeah. with that recording. Yeah. And with this one, he offers also the triple um, uh, cheeseburger with it. Well, if nothing's going to finish you off in life, the triple cheeseburger is, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, it God. is more than a mouthful. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, what are we moving on to now? Because I... Earlier in the programme, I mentioned accents, and I think... Well, you've got an accent, haven't you? Tell us about that accent of yours. I'm a bit bit of a modern-day Brian Redhead on Radio 4, you know. Years (laughs) ago, but in reverse, because years ago, I used to have quite a thick Mancunian accent, because I've been being dragged up in Chalton Kamadi. Whereas now I'm almost, I like to think, RP. What, what's RP? Received pronunciation, Mr. Lawrence. Oh, how I speak. I like, I like to think that people would find it difficult to place where I'm from. But anyway, um, who have been the most famous of your favourite figures with a defining accent in UK culture and media? Well, I think I can answer that briefly, tersely and with pith. Go on then. John Lennon. John Lennon. Yeah, dreadful. John Winston Oko Lennon, as he became known (laughs) as. He did. Uh, Yes, John Lennon, or John, as he was known to many people. Uh, He had a a Merseyside accent. Yeah. He had that Merseyside accent, didn't he? He, uh, And I loved that. Uh, I Even found that more very nasal nice. because of his colla- collapsed nose, because of all yeah. that substance that he used to, yeah. Jam? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. What yeah. about you? Uh, can I make an admission? One well, of as long things- as it's not going to land no, us in no, trouble. No, 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 it's not going to land us in trouble. One of the things that I most enjoy on the radio, um, and I'm not sure many other people would agree with me. There's a little slot on Radio 2, a certain man who uh, appears, yep. the initials J and V on Radio BBC yeah. Radio 2. And on it appears a guy in his garden. In fact, his allotment in the Rhonda Valley, a guy by the name of Terry, who does a fantastic job of encouraging people to grow their own vegetables. And yeah. It, it, you know, it's amazing. A gardening thing on the radio... And this guy is doing all the sound effects. He's literally bashing the plastic pots against the microphone so that you feel you're there with him as he's potting out his leeks and putting his tomato seeds in. I just love it. It's such a warm um, accent. It's such a great bit of radio. Welsh Terry. Welsh Terry from the Ronda. So I went John Lennon, you went Welsh Terry. <laughs> that's, that defines the difference between it. You, know, that's you went why, multimillionaire. That's why I am a, a high status... I went allotment user. Yeah, that's why I sit in the senior radio presenter's chair. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll polish your crowd later. 
You're listening to Box 39 here on Corn Radio 106.6 FM. And this week, Bill Lawrence, Ian Talentar, and Mike Harwood are posing as local public intellectuals by talking about status. You know I played this at my wedding. This is Ausgang Exits with the unseen side of Welling Garden City. Well, I just hope, you know, I can just hope that they're going to be back in the studio playing live Zoom one day. Anyway, this is our show about status, isn't it? Which, which some people define as the relative social or professional position standing in society. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I believe so. Now, that sounds look. like something you've lifted from a dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've got three minutes, according to my uh, my watch, and that's a really expensive watch, much more expensive than yours. Look at that. I don't think it is, Bill. Yeah? I think you're kidding yourself. Your eyesight's failing, Million. Well, luckily, I've got much better glasses than you to... to <laughs> yeah, you're remember. not wearing any. <laughs> they are much better. <laughs> okay, come on, tell us enough of this. What is your guilty pleasure or self-indulgence when it comes to materialism? Things like, you know, glasses, watches, that sort of thing. Is that one of your guilty pleasures? I own quite an expensive watch, as you can see, on my right wrist, Yeah. Um, even though I'm not left-handed. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's... F- it's probably the third most expensive thing I've ever bought after a house and a car. Um, but actually, it's a memory piece because I was left some money by my grandfather and I decided that I would like to be reminded of him every day. So I bought a watch with that money. It's nice. Very so, nice. Other than that, I guess the odd piece of work, the odd piece of work, the odd piece of artwork um, yeah, has, yeah. has cost a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the thing I really, the thing I'm always happy to spend money on is food. Mm. I like lovely food. Mm. Sort of things like uh, chicken nuggets, you know, nice stuff from Iceland for your your tea? No, Bill. No? No. What's good food then for you? I like fresh produce from uh, greengrocers. I like Uh, to go to the butchers and treat myself with a nice... Have a butcher's at the butcher's. I have a butcher's through the butcher's window. Yeah. Has and he got a dog? Does that does your butcher have a dog? And is I'm it? I'm not sure how fit he is. I've often wondered about that. Anyway, uh, I tell you what, I I've heard you, and I've heard you talking about this actually when you've had a beer or two. You you, you quite like French, the French language, don't you? I I just love the fact that um, French is so prominent in English. I just love, and uh, to be quite honest. My my love of one particular word has been ruined during these interesting times because a, a certain uh, government of ours started using the word nuance. Nuance. In almost every broadcast they did. And yeah. that used to be my favourite, favourite word. And they've ruined it for me. <laughs> well, it's, it's perceived, perceived status implications of foreign accents, you know. Which ones are classy? Which ones are convincing? Um, I have a very good French friend, um, and when he speaks English, it is divine. I just love it. Perfect. Slightly accented uh, English with a with a French accent. It's wonderful. So a person may have the status of a subject or citizen, a parent, a child, a student, an employee, an MP, or or just a respected radio broadcaster, or even several of these at the same time. Social stratification is, you see, the result of the interaction between the three Ps. That's prosperity, prestige, and power. Status can be affected by the family you're born into, the salary you're paid, it could be the area you live in, even the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the job you have, the school you went to, the letters after your name, the words that you speak, and even how your voice sounds when you speak them. And it's a mixture of all these things that has resulted in my status here. This is I, this is me, this is who I am, and indeed will continue to be Bill Lawrence. This has been Box 39, Property... I have the desk here in the studio. Prestige! People stop me in the street. Power! I am in charge, Ian. 
I am ordering you to stay and say a few words. Certainly, Bill. Our time is up. Here we are, high up in Cone Radio Towers, far above the Cone Radio car park, where each of us has parked our fabulous Cone Radio company cars, paid for by the loving Wivenhoe residents, even though in terms of status, it sets us apart from them. So with that, I say, be seeing you. Be seeing you. Box 39 is a guppy production for Cohen Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. <laughs>